This morning, we're um, moving forward a few more chapters in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 17. Uh, just the early part of it, verses 1 through 10. And, and this, this passage is often questioned as far as how do these sayings of Jesus go together. Some commentators think that Luke just uh, was gathering different sayings of Jesus and kind of just put them there. But if one thing should be evident to us as we study Scripture is that the, the men who wrote these different letters and different gospel records, uh, they were thinking about what they were doing, and they had a plan, and they had a motivation, and, and they, to a certain extent, had a certain theme that they were working towards. And one of the things that Luke is doing is he is writing to, a, a as we believe, a Gentile uh, provider, you know, he, he's, he's writing to him, the, and, and maybe this man even paid Luke to enable him to spend the time and the energy to research everything. But he, he researched it all so that he could give a good account of all that Jesus did, and then later on in Acts, all that the church was doing at that time. And as Luke is writing, he is, he is focused on uh, certain themes of prayer and, and Jesus' teachings in to the disciples. And he has just finished a um, prophecy, or not prophecy, excuse me, my brain is just not here today. I apologize. He has just finished a parable about the rich man and Lazarus and, and about this need to uh, believe in Jesus Christ and how we live and that how we live today will have an effect on our tomorrow, but also on listening to and believing in Jesus and believing in the prophets that have been given to us and the teachers that have been given to us. And we, we looked a little bit ago, you know, the question of if God would only do this or that. And Lazarus, not, not Lazarus, but the rich man even has a, oh, if you would send Lazarus to my brothers. You know, they would listen and they would change their lives. And Jesus says, even if a man came back from the dead, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't pay attention. And he was really talking about himself. And it's from there that he then is telling his disciples about certain things. And I believe that these passages, these verses, 1 through 10, uh, they do go together. They, they, they don't seem to, if you've read ahead, if you were reading after the, the e-letter this week and, and read ahead, you might wonder how they go together. We have verses 1 and 2 talking about stumbling blocks. We, talk, we have verses 3... And, and four talking about forgiveness. Then the, Jesus, the, the, the disciples ask Jesus for more faith, and he talks to them about faith. And then there's a little parable about a servant or a slave. And, and they, they seem just disjointed. But, but really, they're all focused on the same thing. And, and what we are looking at is this idea of faith to forgive. Because each one of them... Uh, builds off the one before and unite together. And so let's take a look at how this, this passage works together uh, to show us that. It, it begins in verse 1. Jesus uh, said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. It, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks 
come. Literally, the, the, the word that for stumbling block is the idea of a trap or a snare. And, and when he says it is inevitable, it, it's, it's a word that means it is impossible. Now that doesn't make quite sense, right? But here's the thing. He is literally saying impossible it is for stumbling blocks not to come. It is impossible that there would not be stumbling blocks. We have interpreted that as it's inevitable. Jesus is saying this thing, it's just impossible that there would not be. In our lives, it cannot be helped that there will be stumbling blocks. They're going to happen. But woe to him through whom they come. Woe to the person that would cause somebody else to stumble. Woe to the person who would be the source of the stumbling blocks. He says in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now this passage is often, these verses are often looked at as a, a, a warning or even a rebuke of those who cause others to stumble. You know, a lot of times when Jesus is pronouncing woes or the prophets in the Old Testament would pronounce woe, it was woe, you're doomed. Woe, you are doomed. And so similarly, that's what Jesus is saying. It, it, it's inevitable. The world is full of sin. We cannot escape. It is impossible to escape the stumbling blocks that are out there and in our lives. But woe to the person through whom those stumbling blocks come. Woe to the person who causes and brings those stumbling blocks. It would be better for them if you just had a millstone, which is a heavy stone used for milling up grain. It would be better if you had one of those tied around your neck and you were cast into the sea. Which means... A quick death. It, it would be better if you just weren't there. It, it's not only a quick death, but a horrible way to die. But Jesus is saying it would be better for you to do that than that you would cause one of these little ones to stumble. One, that you would be the cause of putting a snare in the path of one of these people who is following Jesus. And, and we often take this as, as judgment, as harsh but, but consider this. It's impossible to escape stumbling blocks. Each one of us at some point in our lives has probably caused somebody else to stumble. You might have had an idea of Scripture and an idea of interpretation on a passage and you shared it with somebody. And... and you were well-meaning and you were doing the best you could, but then years later you look back on it and you think, you know, that might not have been the best interpretation of that Scripture. And yet, you have no idea what you did to somebody else by, by sharing it. And, and you weren't intentionally trying to hurt anybody. You know, we, we often read this as if it was people who were, you know, the, the wicked villain in a pantomime trying to thwart the good guys. But truly, uh, the idea of a stumbling block is the idea that we're going about our lives and we're doing the best we can 
and yet we cause somebody to stumble. Paul talks about this uh, when he talks about watching out that we don't cause our, our brother to sin. By doing that thing, which is perfectly fine and acceptable for us, that is not sin for us, but if a brother or sister who is weak in their faith sees it, they could stumble, they could sin. And Paul says, because of that, I won't do things just even though I have every right to do them if I'm worried about my brother or my sister sinning. Stumbling blocks don't have to be somebody who is actively trying to trip you up. It's person going about trying to do the best they can, and yet they cause somebody else to stumble. It can be a, a mis, misspoken word. It can be a poorly put together phrase. You can be trying to say one thing and you end up saying another. Or my favorite, you said it perfectly, they misheard it, and they stumble. It, it, it is inevitable. It is impossible to avoid Stumbling blocks. There are people in our lives who have caused us to stumble. And there are people in our lives that we have caused to stumble. So Jesus says it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck. He is not literally suggesting we do this. He is letting us know just what a terrible situation we live in. And we exist in. That that we are doomed because of our sin and, and the sin we cause other people and, and the, the hurt we cause one another and the hurt others cause us. It, we are in a, a world of mess. And it, it's healthy and good for us to remember that's our lives. Even the best person, even the kindest, most generous, most Christ-honoring, loving person is going to cause other people to stumble in some way, no matter how hard they try not to. What is the answer to that? Good news. Well, the answer to that is that it leads us to where we need to be. It leads us to the only source we have. It leads us to the only hope we have. Because the, the, the basis of our existence as believers is forgiveness. And if we recognize that we are, are stumbling blocks and we put stumbling blocks in the way of people and we cause other people to stumble, well, then we recognize how badly we need forgiveness. But just as we need forgiveness, we also recognize that those who have caused us to stumble need forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is, is, is the basis of our existence. The only way to become a believer in Jesus Christ is to ask for forgiveness. To believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, to recognize that we are sinners, and to come and say, Lord, forgive me. It, it's, it's the ground floor of walking with Jesus. And it's, it's the ground floor of walking with one another. We can't walk with one another unless we're willing to forgive each other because we're going to hurt each other. And, and so that's why it is so uh, proper that after talking about uh, causing one of these little ones to stumble, Jesus does move in, in verse 3, to a focus on forgiveness. He tells us to be on your guard. And you can take be on your guard as to go with what was prior. Be on your guard for people who will cause stumbling. 
Be on your guard for those that you might cause to stumble. And for those ways that you might cause other people to stumble. Or we can take it just as, a, as an inclusive. It's for what's before and what's after. Because this word, be on your guard, it's not the idea of be alert or, or, or watch out in that way. Be on your guard is to hold to, to attend, to pay attention. A, a, a translation I like for it is devote yourself. Be on your guard. Now, if you were to tell somebody to be on your guard, watch out for this vehicle or for this person, they would keep an eye open for that vehicle or that person. They would devote themselves, in other words, to looking for that vehicle or that person. And in a similar way, Jesus is telling us, devote yourselves to this. Watch out for being a stumbling block. Watch out for stumbling blocks. But also, be on your guard. Devote yourself to this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So the first step is when your brother or sister in Christ sins, the first step is actually not just forgive, notice, but rebuke. Rebuke. It means to, to, to censure, to mete out due measure. You, you basically go and say, this is what you have done. This is why it is wrong. Ooh, rebuke is such a painful thing to go through, isn't it? But it's a necessary thing. We have to be rebuked. We're going along doing our thing, and our thing is wrong, and so somebody has to tell us that thing that you are doing is wrong. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And now when your brother has, has heard the rebuke, how do they react? If he repents, and, and that word repent, it means to change your mind or to change your thinking after being with somebody or after being with an idea. We, we talk about the, the, the action of repent is as if you were going one way and you turn and go the other way. But the word repent is made up of this idea of uh, to change your thinking after you've been with or as you are with somebody. So the idea is if somebody rebuked you, you're changing your thinking after having that connection with them. So as the Holy Spirit rebukes us, as we repent and come to Christ, it is that we are changing our thinking, our way of life, based on His input, what He is telling us. If your brother sins... Rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Let it go. Release him of what he has done against you. Release him of what he has done against somebody else. Release him of what he has done. Don't hold it against him. Forgive him. Let it go. Permit it to leave. He says in verse 4, And if he sins against you seven times a day, now, Peter, probably a similar thing, and maybe Luke repackaged it here, but Peter once said, you know, how often should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Should I forgive him seven times? He didn't put a time stamp on that. He just said seven times. Here, seven times a day. If your brother sins against you seven times a day... Have you ever had somebody sin against you seven times in one day? That's got to get old. Seven is a perfect number. It's the number of creation. So when Jesus says, 
isn't telling us there's a, there's a limit. But he's saying if, if he sins against you as often as God has created the world, is the idea. And returns to you seven times, saying, I repent. Forgiven. And, and, and Jesus is saying to them that this is how we need to devote ourselves. We need to be on the lookout for causing stumbling and for those that cause stumbling. And we need to devote ourselves to forgiveness. There, there is no other way to get ahead in the Christian life except through forgiveness. We don't do better. We don't overcome on our own. We don't establish our own righteousness. The way for getting ahead as a believer is to be forgiven. We are forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. And it's not, on a, it's not a once and done type of deal. It's a daily call and a daily requirement. Jesus died once for us. We believed in Him and started walking with Him once. We're baptized once. But the need to be forgiven and to cry out for God's mercy is a daily basis. If not hourly, if not by the minute sometimes it feels like. And Jesus puts no boundaries on it. If He sins against you seven times a day and comes to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive Him. The basis of our existence as believers is forgiveness. And and maybe that seems overwhelming to you. Maybe as we're sitting here, you've got thoughts in mind of people that you're like, I just can't forgive this person. I can't forgive this action. I can't forgive this thing they said. I can't forgive this thing they did. How am I supposed to do that? And if they came to me seven times in a day and sinned against me and I had to rebuke them and they repent... I don't know that I could do it, forgiving them seven times a day. And if you feel that way, you're not alone, because the disciples felt that way. I think, I think when the disciples, the, the apostles, as Luke calls them in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. This isn't just a, a, a separate story that's being slammed together here. I, I can see where... where having been told to forgive seven times, they feel their lack. They feel their inability. They feel their insufficiency. And and they're saying, increase our faith. Give us the faith to be able to forgive like that. Increase our ability to do what You are calling us to do. We don't have it within us ourselves. But, but Jesus' answer to them is, in essence, that it does not take great faith to live as Jesus commands. Jesus has commanded us to forgive, and it does not take great faith. You don't need Jesus to increase your faith to be able to forgive to that degree, is what Jesus says. Jesus tells them in verse 6, The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea. And it would obey you. And it would obey you. Now, Jesus talks about a mustard seed 
uh, five times in, in the Gospels. Uh, three of them are in regard, and, and it's, it's really just two instances, I should say. One is in regards to the kingdom of heaven, and he, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a farmer planted, and it grew into a big tree, and all the birds of the, of, you know, of the air nested in it. And so he's talking about how the, the gospel and, and the kingdom of God starts out real small, but it grows real big. And, and that story is repeated three times, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's two times, though, where he talks about faith as if it was a mustard seed. This time and in Matthew, they both record it. Now, Matthew's is the one we're all probably most familiar with because it's the time that Jesus said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea, and it would happen. But in Luke, he doesn't use a mountain. He says it's the mulberry tree. And, and why he uses a tree and not a mountain in this point, we don't know. There's even debate on which kind of a tree is he really talking about. It's been translated mulberry, but are we even sure what he is talking about? Which tree, I mean. And, and, and honestly, it doesn't matter. Because Jesus isn't talking about planting trees or mountains in the sea. That's not his point. He isn't, he isn't waiting for a church of people to, grow, to rise up, praying for mountains to move. And trees to be uprooted. He's not saying that. What he is saying is something so ridiculous in our minds to make a point. It is ridiculous in our minds to say to a tree, be uprooted and cast into the sea, and to watch that tree do it. And yet he is telling us if we had just a little bit of faith, just the faith the size of a grain of mustard, we would have that ability to command a tree command a mountain to move, and it would obey us. His point is not moving trees. His point is talking about it doesn't take much faith. You don't need to increase your faith to forgive. It, it's not necessary. In fact, I wonder if when, when Jesus said this, He didn't have something like Micah 7.19 in mind. At the very end of, of the book of Micah, uh, he says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And the idea there is that the sea is where you don't get it back, it's gone, it's buried. For us, we, you know, we, we live in a time where we have um, submersibles that go down and look at the depths of the ocean and we can see all sorts of strange creatures that live there. But for the people of Jesus' day, the sea was a mysterious place. You could only see so far. You could only swim so far. You could only lower your nets so far. It was a place of death and chaos. You had no control. You know, it's one thing to have a uh, to be on land. We have friction. We have the ability to stop. We have the ability to change directions. When you're out in a boat, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Uh, we have things like motors and sails, but when you're when you're 
when you're beholden to the wind and the currents, you, you, can, you can do all you want, and yet the current can still be working against you. You can want to go a certain direction and not be able to go that direction. You feel very much out of control. And under the control and under the whims of unseen conditions and powers. The sea was viewed as chaos for the Israelites. That's why in Psalm 46, when it talks about the, the, uh, the waves bash against the, the, the mountains of Jerusalem, there was no way the, the Mediterranean Sea was getting that close. But it was talking about chaos and attacking armies. So when he says that all these sins will be cast into the sea, he's talking about getting rid of them, about destroying them. You know, the, the abyss is a picture and is often depicted as the sea in Scripture. So those, those sins are going away. And that's what Jesus is saying to us when He talks about, say to this mulberry tree, get up and be cast in the sea. It will obey you. If you just have a little bit of faith. We can cast the sins of one another into the sea through forgiveness. We, we can say this person has hurt me and I forgive them. And Jesus tells us elsewhere that where two or three of you are gathered in My name, I am there. Where two or three of you agree on a matter, if it if, if you agree on a matter, if you bind it here on earth, it will be bound in heaven. If you loose it here on earth, it will be loosed in heaven. He's saying, watch out for those, those things that are going to trip you up. Those stumbling blocks. Watch out for being a stumbling block. But when they come, be on your guard. Be devoted to forgiveness. Forgiveness is the way that we deal with stumbling blocks. Forgiveness is the way that we deal with those that are, are hurting us. By rebuke, repentance, and forgiveness. And, and, and it doesn't take great faith to do it. Jesus has commanded us to forgive. He has forgiven us. We see elsewhere in Scripture how you know, our ability to forgive is based on the fact that God has forgiven us so much more than He is calling us to forgive one another. And so he says it doesn't take great faith. If you just had a little bit, you could... Just a little bit of willingness. A little bit of faith and trust in God. I can forgive this person who has hurt me. I can forgive this person who has slighted me. I can forgive this person who maybe hasn't done anything. They just had an oversight. Or maybe they did something. And it wasn't against me, but it has hurt me because I've had to watch them go through it. But we can cast that sin into the sea through forgiveness. We can, we can put it aside and we can make it as if it is never there again through forgiveness. And that is what Jesus is saying. that If we just had a little bit of faith, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take great faith to live as Jesus commands us. And then He gives them this parable. And in this parable, what we're going to see is that forgiveness is the unremarkable action of a Christian. You know, that's why he says it only takes a little, 
little grain of mustard, a little seed. You don't need to be great. You don't need to be a great theologian. You don't need to be a great person of prayer and, a, and a, of the Holy Spirit to forgive somebody. In fact, as far as Jesus is concerned, forgiveness is the unremarkable action of a Christian. It's ordinary. It's base. It's where we all begin. It's the foundation uh, of our existence as believers. We were forgiven. It is the common currency of Christianity is forgiveness. And so he he tells in this parable, he says in verse 7, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. Now, none of his disciples had slaves. They weren't that wealthy. This is one of those, which of you if he had 100 sheep and one of them got lost? Not everybody has it, but they can all put themselves in that place. And so in a similar way, what he is saying is, imagine you had a slave or a servant, and they were out plowing or tending your sheep. Would, would you say to him when he comes in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Would the master of the house make a meal for the slave? And the, the picture here is uh, somebody of modest income who maybe could afford to have one servant. You know, they've hired somebody or they, somebody is, in, is in, in indentured to them through slavery of the Old Testament time uh, to work for them. And so they're using, you know, they're working in the fields not everything, even in America, when we had slavery, not everything was a massive plantation. Uh, the majority of people who owned slaves would have one, maybe two, and they would live in the same house even and eat off the same table. It wasn't unheard of. And that's the picture that Jesus is painting. Imagine a person had a slave that was working out in the field for them or tending their sheep, and, and when the day's work is done, that slave comes in, the master doesn't set up the table and say, sit down, take a load off, you've been working hard. But what happens instead? He says in verse 8, but will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. So the servant or the slave has been working outside. They come in. No, they don't get to break. They get to keep working. But now not only are they working outside, they're working domestically inside. They have to make the meal. Oh, they can't serve in the clothing they were working in all day. No, they've got to get cleaned up. They've got to put on another shirt so that they can serve the meal for their master while the master eats and drinks. And afterward, you may eat and drink, he says. So, so the, servant, the servant who's been working all day outside comes in and serves the master, and then and only then is able to eat and drink for himself. And, and Jesus says, which one of you, if you had this set up, would you say, come in immediately, sit down and eat? Or would you say, hey, make me something, serve me, and then you can eat? And... The answer, of course, is the second situation. So he says in verse 9, He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded. Does he? You don't thank him when he did what he was supposed to do. You don't, he didn't go out of his way. He did what was supposed to be done. The master doesn't thank him. 
Now, Jesus is not endorsing a way of living. He is talking about a way that the world works. He's saying, in the world, this is the way it works. If a person had a slave, they worked out in the field, they wouldn't say, come in, take a load off, I'll serve you. No, they would say, change your clothing, make me a meal, serve me, let me eat and drink, and then you can eat and drink. And they wouldn't even thank the servant for all their hard work or their slave for all their hard work. Now Jesus elsewhere talks about that he is one who has come not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve. So he's not endorsing. He is using it to illustrate. And Jesus then in verse, 9, in verse 10 says, so you too, so he's going to apply it to our lives. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. In other words, when you have forgiven somebody seven times a day because they have repented seven times a day, don't think you've done anything special. Don't think that you're somehow more righteous than you were the day before. No, just consider yourself an unworthy slave. You've only done that which you ought to have done. Now that word unworthy, it's the idea of, unfortunately it's actually a word that means useless. It's the idea, it's made from a prefix that negates the word useful. And so it's the idea of being basic. Like, you know, I'm just doing the bare minimum. It's not that we're unworthy in the sense of we're unworthy of Christ or we're unworthy of God's love. But that is, it's the idea of, I haven't done anything special. I'm just a, a normal, regular slave. I am not a special slave. And we have done only that which we ought to have done. And that word ought uh, is the word ophelo. And it was in our passage last week when Jesus talked about forgiveness Forgive us our sins as we forgive those indebted to us. And it's the same word. And I think it's interesting that, that Jesus used that word in talking about forgiving us as we forgive those who have a debt that we are, we have a, you know, they're indebted to us. And he says, you know, when we forgive one another, all we are doing is that thing which we were indebted to do anyway. That's what he means by that word ought to. It is that which we owe, that which we are bound to do. It's what we are indebted to do. And if you have a debt with the Lord because He has forgiven you your sins, then forgiving one another is just what we ought to do. It's just what we are, in fact, bound to do by Christ. We are indebted to Him. We're indebted to doing that thing. And so that's why he says that that's the attitude of slave. I've just done what I'm supposed to do. And when we forgive one another, when we forgive one another, all we're doing is what we're supposed to do. What was expected. It's the most basic. It doesn't, it, 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 we are not uh, made worthy by it. We're not all of a sudden, you know, A-level Christians because we're forgiving other people. No. In fact, that's, that's the very floor-level expectation that Jesus has for us. 
as believers, He expects us to forgive. In fact, He expects us to devote ourselves to forgiving. Above all other things, that we would help one another, and and that includes rebuking when we need to rebuke, but also that we would forgive. And it doesn't take great faith. You do not need faith to forgive. It just takes obeying Jesus. Believing in Him and doing as He has done for us. And I don't know about you, but I'm with the disciples. Increase my faith. Give me the ability to do that, Lord, because it still seems too much. But it's not too much. It doesn't take faith. It just takes doing. So let us do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you, Lord, as people in need of forgiveness. We need you to cast all of our sins into the sea. We need you to forget them, no, to remember them no more, and forget them entirely. Father, we, we pray that as we live for you and follow your Son and live through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would forgive one another. We pray, Lord, that we would devote ourselves, that we would keep our eye on the need for forgiveness. Not just our own need, but the, the need to forgive another when they hurt us, when they mistreat us. Lord, it can be small things. They tried to help and they didn't help us the way we wanted it to and we get angry with them and instead we need to forgive them. Father, we pray that we would be obedient to forgive. That we would do that thing that truly we are indebted to you for. You have forgiven us. We pray that we would be people who would forgive one another. And Lord, we know that by doing so, we will become more like you. We will have more of your heart and your way of looking at the world and our lives. We pray, Father. Put to mind those things that we need forgiveness for. Put to our minds those people and things that we need to forgive. And we pray, Lord, today that we would repent, that we would repent and forgive and reconcile to one another. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.